Christmas time is here. And I'm stuffy. I know, guys. But seriously, Christmas is about to be here. And you know what that means? The new year is about to be here. So if you want to freshen up your look, you can find some courage and creativity and unlock some new confidence for the brand new you, all you have to do is check out Minute with Mary on Facebook. All the way from Providence, Rhode Island, welcome to Outlander Cast. It's a podcast dedicated to the show Outlander on Stars. everybody how's it going guess what surprise (laughs) surprise oh you're like wait a second what's going on what day is it why is my podcast feed letting me know that mary and blake are here this is not tuesday or thursday what is going on what is this nonsense well we're here guys for a special christmas surprise episode and even if you don't celebrate christmas just know that my name is mary my name i am a very merry person and this is just another way that we can give a little gift to you our listeners a uh, an right. extra holiday cheer episode full of pre-revolutionary <laughs> pre-revolutionary history yes <laughs> well my name is blake and i'm ready to nerd out again one more history episode Yay! in the books ladies and you gentlemen you asked for it and here it is Oh, and Felicity wants to come say hi. Come here, come here. Come and say... Felicity, our daughter, wants to say come hi. Come say, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And say... <laughs> <laughs> can you say, Regulators. Regulators. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right, Today's going to be all about the regulators. Get out of here. Scram. What else do you want to say? Can you say... Can you sing, sing me a song? Fail. Fail. Not the right song. In addition to hearing Felicity, you're going to be able to hear someone uh, even even Who's actually really good at what they do. Felicity is very good at being a three-year-old. Let's all give major props. All the snaps for our three-year-old daughter. 100% true. (laughs) In addition to Felicity's impromptu singing that you just got, you're going to be here to hear an interview that we have about the history of the War of Regulation. And I'm super excited about this, specifically because we get into a lot of great things in this interview, including the main players, the good guys, the bad guys, everybody that you want to follow and hate, well, love to hate, and the main reasons behind what they did and the whole point of the regulators in general. And bringing some good context to the world of Outlander, the one that we all know and love. Amen. So, my darling, are you ready to get into this fantastic episode, this this beautifully nerdy episode I of sure Outlandercast? Let's do it. Joining us today is Dr. Mario Line Cars, a professor of early American history at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Her work has been supported by, among others, the National Endowment for Humanities, the American Historical Association, 
the John Carter Brown Library, the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, the American Philosophical Society. Gosh, guys, did you hear all that? This lady is legit, okay? Seriously, she has also published a book called Breaking Loose Together, The Regulator Rebellion in Pre-Revolutionary North Carolina, and is probably, (laughs) in case you haven't gathered it by now, the most foremost expert on the war of regulation in academia today. Marjoline, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us on AtlanderCast today. Well, great. I'm honored. So who are the main players we should be keeping in mind as we learn here today about the war of regulation? Uh, Who who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys for our listeners? Well, there are a number of main players. Governor Tryon is obviously an important person. He was the governor of North Carolina. He was an Englishman. He was an army officer, kind of a proud, short-tempered man. Um, The regulators really hoped that he would help them out, and he really didn't. He did a lot to escalate the conflict. He had a good friend who lived in uh, the back country of North Carolina, uh, Edmund Fanning, who was a man in his mid-30s, had been educated at Harvard and at Yale and at Columbia. He was a lawyer and he was kind of a bad guy. He lived in Hillsborough and he really enriched himself at the expense of ordinary people in the Piedmont. Um, and he was a good friend of Tryon's. And then on the other side, are the farmers themselves um, who begin to call themselves regulators in uh, 1766, sort of reaching back to a term that was used in 17th century Britain for people who were appointed to ferret out government corruption. And the name had sort of entered into normal parlance and the regulators adopted that name of regulators to give themselves a certain amount of legitimacy. And then um, a third group of players are the backcountry officials who are engaged in exploitation and fraud. They are the people the regulators oppose. And they are, in large extent, protected by people like Tryon. So those would be sort of the the, the main groups are the farmers and government officials, basically. So is it Tryon who is the person that is directing his his tax collectors to to, to go ahead and 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 take this money for for to put it in their own coffers, or is this something that they were doing independently? Oh, yeah, no, no, they're doing this independently. And um, this had started well before Tryon became uh, governor. He underestimated the amount that they um, uh, that they uh, made away with. Um, because what happens is tax collectors collected money from farmers and then didn't pass it on to the provincial treasury. And Tryon thought that the amount was not so big independent investigations after the regulation showed that it was as much as 66,000 pounds, which is an awful lot of money at a time when most people, ordinary people might make no more than 10 pounds in a year. Wow. So Tryon uh, was not the person who directed it, uh, but by underestimating it and sort of dismissing farmers' concerns and shielding his tax collectors and sheriffs basically were the tax collectors. He didn't do anything to help people get to the bottom of this. So he didn't necessarily cause it, but he's not necessarily preventing it either. 
he's no, he's not preventing it. And uh, and more importantly, he doesn't do anything to try to rectify the situation. In fact, he inflames the situation. How does he inflame that situation? How does he make it worse? Well, he makes it worse. We probably should talk a little bit more about what the regulators are trying to do first. But he makes it worse by not listening to them, not standing up for them, and being very eager to have a military campaign against them. And that influences uh, him greatly. He, he basically does not think that these backcountry farmers can have anything of importance to say. He feels that they ought to just submit to government. Um, they're probably overreacting, and he wants to teach them a lesson. So we've got to hear a bit about this governor, but who exactly were the regulators? You know, tell us a little bit more about their backgrounds, and were the majority of them Scottish by any chance? Yeah, well, actually, they weren't. Um, the North Carolina Piedmont, or the backcountry, as people have also called it, was um, populated beginning in the 1740s by European Americans uh, and in the 1750s. And while some people came directly from Europe, including Scotland, the great majority were people who um, came from the middle colonies, New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania. They were Germans, they were Scotch-Irish, some were Scottish, but not first generation anymore. Um, and they came to the backcountry hoping to find enough land that they could settle their children nearby. In the, in the middle colonies, land had become very expensive. Many farms had been divided up and farmers found that they didn't own enough land so that they could give chunks to their sons, for instance. And so people come to the Piedmont hoping to find land more cheaply and in larger amounts. A lot of them I have argued, also come to look for religious freedom. Many of them were dissenters, people who did not belong to the Church of England. And they are looking for a place where they can practice their own religious beliefs the way they want to, uh, and where they can find enough land to settle their families, their growing families nearby. It sounds like the, these people, they're dissenters um, in, in, in a way that they want to find their own religious freedom, as you're arguing, it sounds like they're already inclined a little bit to to take the matters in their own hands and, and do what what they felt was best for themselves. Is that, would, that, would that be fair to say? Sure, sure, sure. I mean, these are people who, who are moving to land that has only recently been vacated by, uh, by American Indians, um, who have the temerity and the wherewithal to take that long trip by wagon down the great wagon road from, say, Pennsylvania or New Jersey to the backcountry of North Carolina, where they then have to create a farm out of nothing, right? I mean, they settle, often they try to settle down on former Indian land so that there's already some of the land has been cleared and they know that these will be fertile spots, but it's still a lot of work to create a farm. Um, and these are people who do not want to see their, uh, they don't want um, their conscience stifled. They want to live life according to their own norms. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're a somewhat independent lot. So it sounds like we, we have a pretty good context for where we are and you know a, a good baseline for who, who the main players are, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. And I, and I want to talk a little bit about the main goal for what will be, become the regulator rebellion. Mm -hmm. what, what exactly are the regulators actually trying to accomplish? 
Well, I think that when people came to the Piedmont, they were, um, many of them were disappointed. They didn't quite find what they had hoped. For instance, many of these um, farmers had thought that they would come to the Piedmont, settle down on a piece of land and patent it. But in order to patent land, you had to go all the way to the land office in eastern North Carolina. That was complicated. So many of them began to create farms and hoped that in a couple of years, they would have made enough money that they could track to the east and register their land. Instead, what they find is that land speculators, uh, unscrupulous land officials are charging them much more for this land than they would have expected to pay. But once you've put two or three or four years into a farm, you have turned wilderness land into farming land and it's worth more money. Mm -hmm. And so when these speculators who own some of this land or these land officials come and say to you, nice farm you got here, you realize, of course, you need to pay for it. And you say, well, of course, I was going to pay for it. And they go, well, but you've made it worth a lot more money. Now you have to pay more. And people are like, well, wait a minute, I created this farm. Now you want me to pay you for my labor? And basically, these land officials and speculators say, you got it. And if you don't like it, feel free to move on. And so people are creating value through their labor, and then they end up having to pay for it. Or they have to move further west and start all over. And so speculators... And unscrupulous land officials are driving up the prices of land in a way that these folks had not expected when they moved to North Carolina. So that's a major grievance. Another grievance is that in North Carolina, there isn't a lot of money in circulation for complicated reasons that have to do with being part of the British Empire. And that means it's hard for people to pay their taxes because there's not much money. You're not allowed to pay your taxes in kind. You can't pay for it with the products that you have created on your farms. Taxes have to be paid in cash. So people fall behind. Uh, another grievance is that there are no banks in the colonial period. So when you're a new farmer and you need to borrow some money to get yourself established, you can really only borrow it from the richer members of your community which means that instead of having a mortgage from a bank and you don't even know the banker and it's all very informal, I mean, in impersonal, you are borrowing money from people whom you know and who then sort of keep your eye on you and who can charge high interest. And so people fall into debt and they have trouble paying their debts. And when they are taken to court in order to force them to pay their debts, court officials charge high fees. Mm -hmm. And what could happen is that you could have a, a debt of, say, four pounds. And two years later, thanks to court action, your debt could be six pounds. So it would, it would have become 50% higher. And it's these illegally high fees that court officials in the backcountry charge that make people very angry. So they're upset about high land prices. They're upset about high taxes, which are also very regressive because everybody paid the same amount of tax, a poll tax, whether you're poor or, or whether you were rich. 
And people paid taxes over land, but speculators paid very little taxes over their land. And so the feeling was taxes were high, they were unequally distributed, and people had trouble paying for them. And then the third major grievance was that not only when you went to court for debt, but any time you had to go to court to register the mark for your cows or to register your land or to get a marriage license, these officials charged high fees, which really drove up the cost of government. And so these are the three main grievances of the regulators. And it sounds pretty self-serving, too, for someone who is wealthier, where I feel like they would more than likely have these positions of authority, and they're lending money out to these people only to get the money back in the court system. Mm -hmm. it, it seems like a circle that feeds itself. Yes, I guess it's not unusual in, the, in a developing economy. You know, after the Soviet Union fell, we saw something similar in Russia, for instance, when when... An, an area is newly opened up, all kinds of folks see opportunities to come make money. And so some of the people who come to the Piedmont, the great majority of them are looking for family independence, small farms that they will work with family labor and maybe a slave or two. But also people come who see an opportunity to make money fast and in a big way. And those are the folks who end up becoming government officials, who end up becoming land um, officials, and who are the people who really institute a very corrupt government in the backcountry in North Carolina. Were the regulars, regulators sorry, highly organized? Like, Did they have clear goals? Did they work together easily? Or was it really just this bunch of peasant farmers who were just trying to clear out the corruption? No, no, they're they're quite organized. Um, it it begins by people talking to each other, of course, and um, at somebody at some point somebody puts out a call that says, you know, we need to get together. We should just talk to these officials. Maybe they don't realize how hard they're making our lives, and so people begin to organize in different neighborhoods, um, and uh, and then they send representatives from their neighborhood organizations out to go to talk officials in Hillsborough, which is the biggest town in the Piedmont. It started in incorporated, I think, in 1754. And they sent these representatives to, uh, to Hillsborough. The main official there is this Edmund Fanning that I already mentioned. And he basically says, I'm not going to meet with a bunch of farmers. What do these people know about how government works? That's beneath me. And he refuses to meet with them. So they start out by saying, let's talk to these officials. Let's explain to them how we think government ought to be run. Let's make sure that they realize how much they're hurting us. And let's give them a chance to reform themselves. But that doesn't work out because these officials are contemptuous of these farmers and they don't want to talk to them. So then regulators say, okay, if we can't talk to local officials, and they try this a number of times, maybe we need to make sure that the governor and the assembly know what's going on here. Maybe they don't know. And so they get petitions together with hundreds of signatures. They send these petitions to Newburn, and they're dismissed. They're not looked at. They're not taken up by the assembly. 
Then they decide, okay, if we can't talk to the officials here and we can't talk to the officials on the coast who are in charge of the entire province of North Carolina, what else can we do? They then um, begin to, this is all takes place over several years, they begin to increasingly say, okay, well, if we can't reform government um, by legal means, maybe we should try other means. There's one more thing that they try, by the way. They say, okay, if the assembly won't listen to our petitions, we need to appoint or elect assemblymen who will be sympathetic to our cause. And so they figure out who are the most educated, the most um, upstanding men among them, and they do elect some of them to the assembly, among them Herman Husband, who has been a major spokesman for them. But these men are indeed elected, uh, but they are such a small minority that they still can't do anything. So after they've tried to talk, after they've tried petitions, after they have elected their own representatives to the assembly, the regulators begin to do two things. One is they say, okay, if we can't get government reformed, then we're not going to pay our taxes anymore. That's to say, we're going to collect the taxes ourselves. Our regulator representatives will hold the taxes, but we're not going to turn them over to the sheriffs unless they can assure us the money will go straight into the treasury. Mm. And the second thing they do is they begin to organize people's courts where they say, okay, if the courts are so exploitative, we won't go to court anymore. We'll just try to figure things out on our own. They also close courts where they will go to a court session. This happens twice in Hillsborough. And they basically prevent the judges from sitting. They kick them out. They take over the bench. They take over the jury box. And they begin to um, have their own court sessions. That is very upsetting <laughs> to the authorities, both in the Piedmont and, uh, and in New Bern. So it sounds like this is going to start getting into a little bit of a, a physical conflict pretty soon, it sounds like. Yes. I mean, you know, the two, the two times the, court, the courts are closed in Hillsborough, I think once in 1768 and once in 1770, there's some limited violence. Mm -hmm. um, Edmund Fenning's house is pulled down. It's just pretty much destroyed. Basically, people are saying, listen, we built this guy up meaning he used our money to build his nice house. We're, we have the right to pull it down, which of course they don't, but that's what they do. They beat up a couple of the merchants and some of the officials who are most responsible um, for exploiting people. But on the whole, they conduct themselves with very little violence and um, in a very organized manner. By then, they're also upset because Governor Tryon, who is a kind of has aristocratic leanings, has decided that he wants a um, a government building for himself to live in, which comes to be known as Tryon's Palace. And he convinces the legislators to dedicate £10,000 to building him this palace. And the regulators are saying, we barely have enough money to pay our taxes for things that matter. And now we're going to be paying for a palace for Tryon. And so the situation gets heated as people see that their legal 
ways of trying to gain redress don't work. And as people like try and inflame the situation by basically squandering money on things that farmers don't think are at all important. Tryon has is directly benefiting from his tax collectors taking uh, a little bit more off the top than than would be normal. Would that, would that be fair no, to say? No, no, that would not be quite fair to say because what happens is these sheriffs collect the taxes and then don't turn them into the treasury. So the treasury is actually short on money. Okay. On top of that, Tryon is saying, I want 10,000 pounds for my palace, which means new taxes have to be laid to pay for that palace. So taxes are being collected and not turned on to the provincial government. And taxes are more taxes are instituted to pay for things like Tryon's palace. You've you said that it's led to some skirmishes. In in fact, one of our characters in our show said that uh, uh, said that regulators had actually beaten up one of the collectors and dragged him through the streets on his horse. Um, I'm not sure if that's entirely accurate, but it did lead eventually to what we would eventually know as the the Battle of Alamance. And I and I'd like to know. What, how did all this start? How did it lead to this one particular battle that seems to be the 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 the, the height of the uh, violence between the regulators and the, and the state? Well, after the uh, the closing of the court in Hillsborough in 1770, um, the governor is quite incensed, as are a number of assemblymen, and he decides that what he might have to do is march to the Piedmont with an army to to restore um, not so much order because once they have closed the court, regulators, you know, go back to their houses, but to bring these people to a proper understanding of their position in society. And he gets a riot act passed that gives him the authority to raise an army against the regulators and the assembly agrees to pay for this. And so Tryon begins to assemble an army. He's also upset because regulators are spreading beyond the Piedmont. They are no longer organizing just in the backcountry, but they are increasingly sending representatives out much further east where people have their have similar issues and they're saying you guys need to organize we have a lot of experience we can help you do it and so there is a rising sense among uh, assemblymen and the governor that this is going to grow out of control uh, that um, there's going to be a lot of opposition and try and decides that that what he wants is a a, a military solution to this conflict. Mind you, he still never talked to people. He's refused to talk to them. And he actually has trouble raising the militia because increasingly farmers in the East are kind of sympathetic towards the regulators. And in some of the counties out East, they have to raise the militia for this army basically at gunpoint. And in the end, he gets about 1,100 people together, men. About 10% of them are officers. Uh, Many of these officers are men who will lead North Carolina into revolution. So these are leading Whigs who themselves think that it is right to oppose a corrupt government. 
They're just not in favor of it when that corrupt government is them. <laughs> so it's a pretty interesting situation. And so you have all these sons of liberty in North Carolina from the East who go on the march with Tryon to reduce the regulators who fancy themselves to be like the Sons of Liberty too. They're saying, well, these, guy, these guys on the East Coast are opposing the British government because it's corrupt. We completely agree with that. When a government is corrupt, people should oppose it. That's exactly what we're doing here at home. We're opposing our corrupt government. That's not how these Easterners see it. And so it takes trying a couple of um, months to get his army together. Then he marches it to Hillsborough. Um, the regulators gather in large numbers. Um, they try to send emissaries to him saying, please, let's talk, let's not fight. At some point, they sent three men. Um, one of them is a minister. Uh, Tryon sends the minister back, but he keeps the two other men. Uh, and he basically tells the regulators they have to disperse. When they don't disperse, he takes one of the hostages and he has the man executed mm. uh, in full view of the assembled regulators. He then says one more time, you have an hour to disperse, but before the hour is even up, his, his soldiers are firing, regulators are fighting, and it becomes um, a battle uh, on this field outside of Hillsborough. Um, in Alamance County, that is now a, uh, a site of the, I guess, the National Park Service. Um, and the battle lasts for several hours. Many of these farmers uh, were either not armed or they came with just a couple of bullets because they didn't really think that their own governor was going to hmm. fire on them. Um, and in the end, uh, perhaps as many as 20 farmers are dead, seven soldiers have died and 150 men are wounded. Wow. And, uh, and the governor wins. Uh, the regulators sort of melt away when it becomes clear that they can't win. And some of them, like Herman Husband, have already disappeared before the battle because many of these dissenters were pacifists like Quakers and they didn't think that a military fight was the right thing to do. And after that, um, a number of regulators are taken uh, to be tried. They are hastily tried in Hillsborough. Twelve of them are condemned to death. Um, of those twelve, uh, six are, are uh, pardoned, uh, as they're already standing in Hillsborough on the execution field. The governor... Um, Pardon six of them, and the other six are hanged uh, in front of a crowd. People are uh, are uh, forced to come watch. These are fathers of young children, um, and then Tryon undertakes a punitive march through the backcountry, where he um, uh, marches from settlement to settlement, requisitioning food for his soldiers, food for his horses, destroying farms of people that he knew were regulators and forcing people to take an oath of loyalty to the to the British king, even though they had never renounced their loyalty to the British king. So it really becomes a violent movement, not because of what the farmers do, but because of what Tryon and his Eastern allies do, who are ironically the very men who will in another, what, five years, lead North Carolina into revolution. After all that happens, <laughs> after Tryon goes parading around, taking all the food, being 
being a real jerk. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> yeah. After after winning, what was the political fallout like? Like, did he get kicked out, or did he get even more control of the area? Well, part of the reason he is so eager to have a military um, solution is that he has already received word that he has been reassigned. He is going to be the governor of New York, and he wants to leave North Carolina subdued. Uh, And so as soon as that punitive march is over, he leaves and he takes Edmund Fanning with him as his personal secretary. And a new governor comes in, Josiah Martin. And when he first arrives, he is convinced that the regulators are an unruly bunch who unjustly stood up against government and got and deserved everything that they got. But at some point, he begins to travel through the backcountry and he begins to look into things and he realizes that these farmers were largely right, that 66,000 pounds had indeed not been turned in by sheriffs, that indeed officials are charging fees that are too high, uh, that indeed there is corruption in the land office. And he tries to take some measures to ameliorate this. Um, Some of these officials get relieved of their posts. Um, He uh, sort of tries to make the tax um, um, collection more fair. Um, But at the same time, he's, of course, also dealing with the heating up of the American Revolution. Um, And so um, the structural changes in the economy and the political system that the regulators had fought for don't come into being. But Josiah Josiah Martin does take some of these sort of short-term stopgap measures that somewhat uh, diffuse the tension. And Tryon then in New York uh, uh, becomes, uh, during the Revolutionary War, is an officer uh, on the British side and is later accused of uh, allowing his troops to perpetrate some really horrible things. So he is he's clearly a military guy who likes to be in the field and show his might around. It sounds like hopefully, though, that eventually, uh, at least under the under the the watch of Josiah Martin, things like, as you said, they, they kind of level out for the, the regulators and, and the people of the area. They're not getting taken advantage of as much uh, in the future. No, I'm not sure I would quite put it that way. I think that the situation is diffused enough that uh, it's not only that the situation is diffused, the um, the repression that Tryon undertakes when he goes to the backcountry is such that people don't want to be a part of the regulation anymore. I mean, they have tried and they have been resoundingly defeated. The fact that he takes so much food from them means people are hungry in the in the winter thereafter. These folks are like, you know what, we tried and it didn't work. So some of the measures Josiah Martin takes help them, but the really structural change they wanted, which means land should not be owned in large quantities by rich speculators and poor people should have to buy it from them. The fact that there is no bank doesn't get changed. Um, We still have elections by voice vote uh, so that 
people can't really make an independent choice without the people to whom they owe money in their community knowing whom they voted for. None of those things come into being. And it shows because when the revolution rolls around, there's a lot of conflict in the backcountry. A lot of people are saying, why would we fight for a revolution when that revolution is led by the very guys who defeated us? Other people are saying, we already kind of fought a revolution and we lost. So you know what? We're not going to get involved again. And then there are also people who join either the loyalists or the patriots. But uh, And other people are saying, you know what? We've been defeated here. We're going to move further west. Yeah. And they leave North Carolina. So I wouldn't say that the regulators get what they fought for. And part of the proof is in that that a hundred years later, um, there there is a big farmers movement in the south uh, fighting for much the same thing and much the same issues. Um, but Josiah Martin is at least not brutal like Tryon was. Is there a direct connection to the revolutionaries up in Boston at this time? Uh, and in, if so, how did this help lead to the American Re Revolution for the colonies as it began? Well, there, there is a connection in the sense that after Tryon defeats the regulators, there's quite a bit of sympathy for them at, at first, particularly in places like Massachusetts, because people say, well, you know, we're fighting the Brits who were corrupt and these people seem to have been doing the same thing. But then increasingly, as lead, revolutionary leaders depend on sort of the political might of ordinary people, right? When you have a Boston Tea Party, when you level the house of the tax collector in Boston, when you when, when you have any of these activities, what you need is ordinary people to come out in large numbers to give bite to your demands, right? Mm -hmm. And increasingly in these Northern cities, revolutionary leaders are sort of realizing that by encouraging people to take to the streets, they are potentially opening themselves up to political reform, to people saying, okay, it's one thing to fight the king in England, but what about the huge class disparities right here at home? What about the unlevel playing field? What about economic inequity? And so I think as the revolutionary struggle heats up, increasingly revolutionary leaders are saying, we need to make a clear distinction between us fighting the British government and people at home fighting us, which is a totally different thing. It's wrong. And ordinary people don't have the kind of political wherewithal to fight us because they barely understand how the economy or, or the political system works, which is not true, of course. So that sympathy for the regulators among revolutionary leaders, I think, wanes as the revolution heats up. Marlene, I got to tell you, I, I got my degree in history and it, with with the special specialization in American history. And mm -hmm. to be honest, I didn't really hear a whole ton about the the, the regulators. Yeah. Um, and I'm surprised by that. Why is it not more emphasized in, in texts and and in in and, and is it just overshadowed by the Revolutionary War? Well, I think it is in part overshadowed by by the revolution, which 
we in America have tended to see as a very triumphant moment and a triumphant movement, even though there were many groups like the regulators who in the revolutionary years fought for something that never came to fruition. The regulators fought for economic democracy, for political democracy, and they didn't get either. So if we want to see the American Revolution as a successful movement, we kind of have to not talk too much about the large numbers of ordinary people, including enslaved people, who did not get out of the revolution what they had hoped for. So I think that's one reason. I think the fact that the people who opposed the regulation in North Carolina were revolutionary leaders has something to do with it because we revere our revolutionary leaders. So we don't want to see them as oppressing the people at home. And a, a third reason is that throughout American history, I think we have treated farmers with tremendous condescension. As people, whether they were uh, populists or they were regulators, we have seen them as people who don't really understand what's going on and are always complaining. Instead of taking their um, grievances seriously. And for the, up until the 20th century, the great majority of, uh, of Americans were, after all, in, involved in agriculture. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of glad that this TV series is looking at the regulators and I hope it will inspire people to read about them and to and to educate themselves about those other aspects of the revolution that we don't talk about nearly as much. Yeah. Well, speaking about that, Marlene, why where can people find your book? Well, I think that you can buy it um, uh, in in bookstores uh, or um, on, on online booksellers. I don't know whether I'm allowed to say the names yeah, or you not. Are. Yeah, yeah, you can. You go right ahead. Yeah, so you can buy it on Amazon as an ebook or as a as a regular book. I'm sure there are also secondhand copies around. Um, so I think it's still freely available. You can also buy it directly from UNC Press. Excellent. And if somebody wanted to get in touch with you in social media, or if they just wanted to email you about more about it, because I, I, a lot of our listeners are are very interested in the context of what our show is trying to give them. Can they reach you on social media at all? Yeah, they can reach me on email, kars at umbc.edu. Um, I do have a Twitter account, but I don't use it that much. <laughs> so I guess email would probably be the best way. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so incredibly much for taking the time to delve deep into this historical aspect that we've gotten just a taste of in the show. So we really appreciate your taking the time to chat with us about this. Well, thank you so much for thinking of me and, and thank you for providing this really important uh, historical background to what sounds like a delightful TV series. Marjolein Cars, everybody. What do you think about that, huh? Amazing. Brilliant. Yeah. We told you. She like knows her stuff. She knows everything Front there is back. to know about it. And of course, if you want to delve more into The Regulators, you can, of course, go check out her book. We'd be more than happy for you to go check it out. So that way, maybe that could be a little holiday gift for yourself. You a know what? I might 2019 even put... reading, even though Diana Gabaldon just dropped... <laughs> That, oh, yeah. That her book's Huge news. Yes. Huge news. So obviously you have two books that you might want to check out for yes. 2019. You know what I'll do is I'll, I will put the link to Marjolein's book, Breaking Loose Together, yes. uh, on the page of this 
podcast episode. So just go to outlandercast.com and check out the page for this episode and you'll see a link in Amazon to her book if you so choose to go read it. I was impressed by her knowledge and I was impressed by one thing in particular, the fact that Governor Tryon didn't necessarily directly benefit from everything that these guys were doing, but he didn't stop all of the shenanigans either. And then when it all came down to it, he was like, I am ending all of this. I'm going to put this rebellion down with some pretty massive force. And I I just I didn't anticipate that. I, I always felt like Tryon was the one who was directing all of it and trying to gain support from all of his lieutenants, if you will, uh, and and loyalty from his lieutenants. So he said, okay, listen, if, if you do what you do, then that's great. Like, I'm not going to stop you. But he didn't do that. I was I was genuinely surprised by that. And I was also genuinely surprised by the fact that the regulators, as uh, Dr. Marilyn Carr says, were actually highly organized. And they really had a mission statement. And they tried their best to fulfill that mission statement. I mean, weren't, weren't you surprised by that, my darling? Yes. I was I was shocked. I thought they were just a bunch of jabronis. Just <laughs> running around. Yeah, we're regulators. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, we're regu- yeah, we'll regulate well, you. Well, we will obviously like it's be Warren delving G talking about regulators. more in the regulators, <laughs> especially with this upcoming episode, as we've been able to see from some of the teasers. So really excited to delve into that, not only in the show, but for you all to be able to have heard this episode. And as I said, feel free to check out her book. It sounds like it's a really good one. All right, my love. Are you ready to close out this Merry sure Christmas? Am. Happy sure holidays. Am. You know, happy kind New of Year. happy New Year, whatever. Happy Festivus, happy Solstice. I mean, that's really what we need to talk about. Happy we're, Solstice. We're gonna air out the grievances. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's call. Let's uh, let's close this one out. We want to thank the entire Outlander cast staff for making our ship of Outlander cast keep on sailing. If you haven't had a chance to check out the blog, head on over there. We've got great articles, whether it's behind the scenes, whether it's episode recaps in a wonderfully witty way, or if it's delving upon themes or uh, ways that the show has made some of our bloggers think and feel. Check that owl out at outlandercast.com. We, of course, also want to thank all of our patrons on any level who really help fiscally make sure that the podcast, the website, everything keeps on running smoothly. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time and the money. Something as little as even $2 a month, which is less than a cup of coffee these days. How incredibly crazy is that? But it's true. You can be a patron at the OutlanderCastClan.com and you help continue to make this podcast and this OutlanderCast in general thrive. We really want to thank our highest level patrons, our associate producers, Angie, Carolyn, Celine, Cheryl, Diane, Heather, Jennifer, Lauren, Linda, Marilyn, Mary, Michelle, Patricia, Summer, as well as our awesome co-producers, Barbara, Carolyn, Christina, Dana, Dieta, Janet, Keelan, Kirsty, Lisa, Liz, Mary, Marianne, Meredith, Raynal, Rita, Sharon, Sue, Tara, Tina, and Tracy, and last but not least, our executive producers, Anne, Bobby, Jen, Katie, Martha, Peg, and Sarah. Thank you all so much for being dynamite, amazing patrons. And we also want to remind you that the Outlander cast finale party is happening. So when you listen to this today, actually tomorrow, the 
tickets are going on sale to the rest of the world. You will be able to get them. And if you get them before December 31st, 2018, you will get it at $75. After December 31st, it will be $85. So I would recommend that you go before December 31st and purchase them. But we are looking very forward to this party. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be held in Newport, Rhode Island at the Old Colony House. And we're going to be having... All sorts of historic stuff. Oh, my God. Right around this time period. I mean, yes. that's it. We want to get as colonial as, um, you know, history for, for all of us. I mean, think about it. You love Outlander partially because you love history. You're loving right. the historical aspects. Let's all travel back in time together and celebrate the finale of Outlander Season 4 together. And, and there's no real, more real colonial place in Rhode Island than Newport. <laughs> I mean, pretty, it's, yeah. it's it's intense. Yeah. And where we're having it, it's at the old colony house, like we said. Uh, uh, cobblestone streets and little colonial-style inns in the area. We're going to be having some great food, some live entertainment, obviously the live podcast, uh, a screening of the finale, and uh, just some excellent food from some of the local vendors in Newport. So please make sure you go check it out as soon as you can. Don't forget, by leaving us a written review in your podcast app of choice, it allows Outlander lovers who may not necessarily listen to our podcast, it allows them to learn about us. So I want to thank CNA Gomez, who said, almost as good as the show. This is the best podcast out there for Outlander. As soon as I watch an episode for the show, I look forward to hearing what Mary and Blake will say about it. Blake always catches things I don't, and Mary's love for all things Outlander and all things Roger ah, makes me laugh. <laughs> I enjoy listening to the podcast each week along as much as I enjoy watching the show itself. Thank you for a great podcast. Well, thank you, CNA Gomez. Thank you to everyone who's taking the time to write us a review. Honestly, Blake and I read all of these. It makes us smile. We're two nerds who are tired, have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and this brings us joy. Mm -hmm. We are so happy that Outlander has brought us uh, you in our lives. You guys are one of the biggest gifts that we could have ever asked for, and for you to take the time to write even a few sentences means the world to us. So thank you so, so much. All right, kiddo, you ready to uh, go go have some drinks and celebrate Christmas and open presents? (laughs) By that, you mean go take a nap and hopefully make my cold go away? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, by drink, do you mean Alka-Seltzer? Yes. (laughs) All the effervescence. Our poor podcast listeners, they're like, why is Mary always sick? I know. I have a three and a five-year-old, guys. I'm pretty much a human tissue. On that note, my name is Mary Larson. I'm Blake. (laughs) And you've been listening to OutlanderCast. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.